This is the great Bharata. How are you doing, Bharata? How are you, Brandon? Is everything going well, my friend? Everything's great here. We're at home during these times, but everything's going great. Thank God. This is Seize Your Mind, the podcast about soccer, mental toughness, and life. We're here today with the director of futsal. Is that your official title? Coordinator, yes, coordinator of the department. Coordinator of the Department of Futsal of Santos. Futsal and the integration between futsal and outdoor soccer. Got it. I met you personally when you came to Tulsa, Oklahoma about two years ago. Two or three years ago. No, I, it was two years ago. Yeah, two, two or three years ago. He came to do some camps, some training here for the kids in the United States, and I helped as a translator because I speak English and Portuguese. So we met and became friends because he's a great guy. What I want to know is, how did you get to where you are now? Was it like in the beginning when you started playing soccer? Where did you learn? Let's start from the beginning and see where it goes. Yeah, Brandon, I'm uh... I'm originally from Rio. I was born in Rio de Janeiro. Carioca. Carioca, where is, or used to be a very strong birthplace in futsal. Today, not so much anymore, unfortunately. But I had the privilege of being part of a team called Bradesco, that I had a lot of access to various players, to great players, both at the national level and world level at the time. Today, Brazil is still at the top internationally, but they share it with Spain a little bit. But that was my beginning. That is where I had great teachers. I started to compete in great tournaments, big tournaments, and I had a lot of colleagues that played at a high level as well. What year did you start to do organized futsal? 19... I was born in 1971. I started to play futsal 1979 or 1980, eight or nine years old. So that was my beginning. That was my beginning and when I was 16 years old, the market started to change a lot and Sao Paulo started buying younger players and I was one of the privileged and I started my journey throughout all of Brazil then I became a professional in futsal I had a short experience with outdoor soccer but I consolidated in futsal and in Sao Paulo and was part of big teams at that time and I had the joy of being part of the Brazilian national team for the younger ages and as a professional, then at the end of my playing career, I went to school because I wanted to still be a part of it. I wanted to learn how to teach. And now I find myself here at Santos Football Club for over 15 years. I graduated here, I got married, and I have my kids here, even though I do have a daughter in Rio at the moment. But I got married here 
I graduated here and have been following my career path as a, as a teacher, as a coach, as a coordinator, director. Santos is a team that has a big presence of futsal in the development of their outdoor soccer players. Outdoor soccer. Outdoor soccer. Yes, we have that responsibility here. So that's a little snippet of my history and how I got here. When you started at Santos, what was your title? What did you start as? I started, I was an ex-player for the club. Then I was an intern at the youth futsal school. And I taught while I was concurrently in college. And then when I graduated, I became a teacher at the futsal school. And then I became a coach for the competitive teams at Santos. Then I became a supervisor. And today I'm the head of the department. I traveled my career path all inside Santos. You started way at the bottom, huh? Yes, uh, I went traveling my career path while going to school, both in parallel. I was getting more qualifications, acquiring more knowledge, and was working in roles that complemented that. You said you played all over Brazil. What made you stay at Santos the entire time? What made you fall in love with Santos? Yeah, Brandon, I had the influence of Santos already. I was already towards the end of my playing career when I was, mm, let's see, I'm going to be 49, so I was a little over 30 years old. At the same time, I met my wife in that process, the mother of my children. And the objective of the team, of the club, they wanted to continue to use me afterwards. So I think players, when they get close to the end of their careers, they start to signal what they want to do after they quit playing. So I think it was a meeting of opportunities. And because of my characteristics, my professional profile, I was showing signs that I wanted to work in that field. And so there is a marriage of those ideas. My personal side, my family side, and what I wanted for my future. Along with what Santos wanted. And so there is a junction there that until now is working. Thank God. Cool. Let's talk a little bit about Neymar and Hobinho. You had those big names at Santos. What was it like being their coach? Could you tell from the beginning that those guys were special? Could you see that right off the bat? Or was it just towards the end that they started getting way better than the other players? Yeah, in those two specific cases you mentioned, Robinho... I had very little access to him compared to Neymar because Robinho, I was interning as a trainer then. Uh, so I was an assistant of the technical committee that worked with those kids and Robinho was a part of that process. But I had a li I had little contact with Robinho. But without a, without a doubt, he was getting a lot of attention for his individual qualities, for his playful manner, always goofy, happy. Things very similar to Neymar. 
in the case of Ney, and also of Gabigol and Rodrigo, that went to Real Madrid, and Gabigol's at Flamengo, and he's standing out. Those two, I was their coach. And Neymar, like you said, it's not that he already stood out. It's hard for us to say, oh, he's going to be a huge player. But he was always different from his teammates, his generation, even the age level above him. He, he always stood out. And what really caught my attention, which is stating the obvious first to talk about his technique, his individual skill with the ball, that's stating the obvious. That would be evident to any observer. But what really caught my attention about him was his behavior in terms of the ball. He was always excited to train. He was never lazy. He was always in contact with the ball. When we would stop the activities to give some guidance or to tell something to the entire group and would huddle up, stop, gather around. I want to tell the group something. He would always come over while juggling the ball. Everyone would be standing around and he'd come over and nutmeg someone. When practice was over, he would always complain, saying, why is it over? So that's what stood out to me, and, and the joy that he had to be in that realm, to be practicing, and always in contact with the ball. Always, always. It seemed like the ball was the biggest love of his life. That was the impression I got. Which is true. What about the psychological part? How did you develop the mental aspects of, with your players? Look, man, Santos has in its methodology, in its idea of the game, based on its history, based on its culture, based on its region, the club that developed the biggest player of all times, that is Pelé. This is a huge responsibility. We still run into some of Pelé's teammates here at the club. So this took the club to a level with a style of play that you see a lot of audacity. A lot of personality, a lot of courage a lot of initiative, a lot of resilience. Because a boy or child that has audacity in its process of development has to be very resilient. He has to be resistant. He has to be courageous. These are pillars of our methodology that we value. We're, and we value ball possession. We, we value initiative. We don't give the ball away easy to the opponent at any moment. We always want to keep the ball in any situation on the field or court based on the ideas and virtues I've stated. This makes the child deal with constant risk-taking. So the risk-taking aspect is always near in our practices and training. 
and throughout the creation of our methodology. So for the child to deal with taking risks, they have to have a big dosage of courage. They have to be audacious. They have to be resistant. And they have to have big personalities. And obviously how we start training them here at seven years old, we have to extend these ideas to their families. We have to prepare our staff to be capable of teaching the children that they have to be bold, that they have to take risks, and ultimately they're going to make wrong decisions. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to give the ball away. They're going to miss goals. They're going to try something based on the teachings of Santos, and they're going to mess up. That's why we have to be prepared in terms of our staff that they're dealing with that development of the child as well as the, as the child's family as well. Because if a father, a mother, or an important family member that the child relies on, if these people are not prepared, they will make comments that will be detrimental to the development of the players. So the intellectual development, the development of their learning process, the emotional preparation, this is something that is constantly being implemented in the development of the players. Because of the fact that I want them to be bold, I want to them to have initiative, I want them to have personality. Because the Santos fans asked for this. They demand this. I have to protect them from the start. I have to support them, I have to teach them. I have to teach them how to deal with mistakes, how to be resilient, and that's the path that we take. Cool. So you guys look at the bigger aspect. You look at the 360 view of the player. Yes, Brandon, because there's no way for us to separate something because when we are talking about a player in its younger years, in its beginning development, it is a person. And people, everyone has their own way. Everyone has their own development. Everyone has their own family life. Everyone has their own household, house. Everyone comes from various social levels. So it's inevitable that the teachers have a big picture view, us coaches, us directors. It's not easy for a family, for a child, to come up in a team in the shadow of Neymar. To always be hearing about Robin, always people referencing huge players that come before them. It's big shoes to fill, so we have to be worried about the development of our athletes because we know that most of them are not going to be professionals. Most of them, we have to use the tool that is sports, the tool that is futsal, to contribute, especially in the development of the children as people. In the children to become great people, great men, great sons, great fathers, because we know that the funnel of futsal is one that few become superstars in the grand scheme of things. Even though it's idealized and glamorized, you see huge players, it's a global phenomenon. Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, Neymar. It sends a message to these kids who we get in the beginning of this process of that it's easy, that I'm gonna be just like so-and-so. That's a mirror for them. But we know that our responsibility as a developer is much larger. It's a much bigger aspect. Like you said, it's a 360 view is a great argument, but this really is the idea. We know 
that our contribution to developing the player as a person is a lot more important than making them great soccer players because this process is going to carry them through their entire life, even after they are no longer with us. So our, our participation in that aspect is very important. Very cool. You focus more on turning the children into well-developed people, into adult men, into adult women. And if it works out in soccer, then great. Yeah, using the tool of soccer, using the tool of futsal. We can never forget the fact in the moment of sports, in the moment we are introducing an activity and practice, that it's parallel with these moral values, with personal values. Discipline, know how to lose, know how to win, respect an authority figure like a referee, respect the time, being punctual, hygiene, safety, respect a better player, a worse player, a faster player, a slower player. All these aspects, we use the tool of soccer to develop the children as a whole. So it's a mirror, basically. Soccer and life. Yes, exactly. There's no way not to. Especially because in Brazil it's cultural. The children are very into the process of soccer and we can't lose this opportunity to use the sport to take our children down a path that will lead them to a development as a complete wholesome person. Do you remember recently any player that was playing well was scoring a lot of goals and then for whatever reason started to lose confidence started to quit scoring goals did you have a player like this and what did you do to get him to bounce back in terms of confidence and how did you go about doing that yeah Brandon um, we don't have a lot of uh, here at Santos we have similar cases every week I mean However, we're a diverse, multidisciplinary team that, that we can disperse. For example, the moment, the first moment is inside the court. If a kid shows signs that they are falling behind, are a little withdrawn, or having a bad attitude, or rebellious, uh, started to act differently, we have an entire team at the family's disposal to try and help them in that process. So we have a lot of programs in play. The kids show signs of disobedience, something that happened at home that is, affected, uh, that is affecting the progress of the kid. We look for, we have a social team that goes to the home. They go inside the home to try and investigate what happened. The club has resources available like psychologists, pedagogues, teachers, social workers that can help us with the development of the child. So invariably we have parents splitting up, father losing his job, and it's affected the child, the birth of a sibling. Maybe it caused the child to be disobedient or reclusive. So we're always aware of things of that nature that can cause problems and we try to come in with resources to help the child whenever it's needed. Very cool. 
You have an entire team for that. Yes, yes. That's great. Let's talk about how you add fun into your training sessions. How do you? Give some examples of how you turn something that was boring or repetitive and monotonous. How did you play with it and turn it into something fun for the children? Look, Brandon, I go back to the cultural aspect. I grew up in a generation that playing in the streets had a big influence on my learning and development as a player. So everything that is in street soccer, creativity, joy, having fun, playing, playing soccer, you can't stray too far away from those characteristics. So another important tool, an important pillar in the building of our methodology is that fun or joy has to be present in the activity. And what is related to fun for the child, we discovered over time that is something that is a challenge. Children don't like to do things that are too easy, things they can easily accomplish. So you need a challenge with possibility to accomplish it, but nothing too challenging that they can't accomplish it because that will be boring as well. So everything that is challenging for the child, everything that is new, everything that they can do but not perfectly, this we have found out from personal experience that it brings joy, fun, and every time a child is having fun, they're giving it more. They're having more output. The training sessions are more pr productive. Competitiveness also plays a big role in motivating the children. It's important for one team to compete with another, to create criteria for evaluating competitiveness, uh, create prizes to motivate them, always using competition, and always make the activities fun. So all of our activities, whether during the beginning, warming up, or the main part, or cooling off at the end, in every part, we have to be child challenging the child, but also we want them to know that their voices and feedback are important. We always like to hear what they thought of their activities. Because if they had fun, if they had joy in doing what they were doing, and that stuck with them, they will be able to explain the activities better in terms of tactics from their point of view. And that's when we know they had fun. And everything that is fun, even for us adults, Brandon, we want to repeat. We want to do it again. Something that gave us pleasure. Right. Yeah, so that counts a lot. And also a very important aspect in this whole process is the object, the ball. Every time that we would remove an important object in the activity, the most important one was the ball. When we removed the ball, it would make the activity less fun. 
Sometimes there are activities that don't require a ball, and this in our club, we've learned over a long period of time, is that in whatever activity, whatever the objective, whenever possible, keep the ball in the activity. Because the child has a relationship with the ball that makes them more motivated and more happy. Even if it's something that is very physical that they normally would do without a ball, when you add the ball, it adds joy to the activity. They have more fun doing the activity. So these are small things that we can take with us down our path. Very cool. What about in terms of setting goals, both personally and for your players? Do you write down your goals? For example, I want to score 15 goals this season. Do you write them down? Do you do things like that? No, Brandon, we don't have goals like that. We have acquisition of knowledge. Some tools so that we understand that the child has gone through that stage. For example, we have game film, training film, where that age range, for example, eight years old, we understand that they can do an offensive transition, respond to those stimuli with counterattacks that they know how to do that. So we emphasize this in the process of their development. So let's say this month <coughs> we focus on counterattacks. So we're going to have four games in the month that we want to see them responding to counterattacks based on what was practiced in training, but in real life on the court. So then we show them the film and have how have they successfully accomplished this. We make an association with what was practiced with the child's capacity to acquire new knowledge. Sometimes they don't even know what it was they learned, the new counterattack, but when we show them using the tool of video or film, that in the first game they didn't do what they should have, they made a different decision that came in their head at the time, and we respect that, but in the long run in their development that they start to respond correctly. When we then show them that they have achieved this correctly, we we don't set goals because they are human beings that they learn at their own speed. So in the special treatment of individuals in a collective concept, that is the soccer team, we also learn that we're going to have problems because to give a reward to the goal scorer, for example, that person only was a top goal scorer because my defense as a team is very good. So while he did indeed give cover, stole a ball, and pass it to you for you to score the goal, we always want to emphasize that team effort. So our goals, including our staff, that teachers and coaches teach them, we discuss those type of things in our meetings. In terms of making a team play more as a team, have more team chemistry, what do you do for that? Do you have any tips for this? Well, Brandon, when we go to the game, we want it to reflect all of the construction of the methodology of the day-to-day -day practices week in and week out. 
So it's clear that we will want the children to understand that the game is a collective modality made up of individual connections. We want the individuality to benefit the collective, the group. So our control of team chemistry and all of our activities requires bonding, relationships, connections between the keepers, with the backs, with the wingers, require a connection with the, with the reserves, connections that lead to the entire team working as a unit, as a whole. So there's an understanding between another. For example, I'm going to give a lot of importance to understanding the opponent's strengths and weaknesses. This makes us come together to try and resolve a problem that the opponent has imposed upon us to defend. How am I going to defend against them if I don't have the support of the entire collective, the team? You call it chemistry. We don't, if we don't have, how, how are we going to do that if we don't have chemistry? So the extracurricular activities that we promote, it's normal for kids to pair up together, to form like small cliques. For example, kid A gets together with King B, team with kid B because of this trait, because of social status, because of their families. We do everything we can to have extra activities to make everyone bond together. We'll go to the beach to do a football class. We'll go to the beach and we'll have a group class about the history of the club. As often as possible, when it's someone's birthday, we ask them to invite the entire team, just not their close friends. Activities that promote getting to know each other, promote the collective unit, and that we know that we are valuing team chemistry and we see the fruits of that inside the court. So you're seeing the rewards of focusing more on that. No doubt, no doubt, because uh, it's a big picture type of work, you know. Our coaches have to be alert and aware because it's very common in soccer for you to value the person that scored the goal, the person who did something more plastic, who made the dribble, right? So we want our professionals, our, our coaching staff, to be figuring out ways that we can give merit to everyone in terms of the collective unit, to the one who's more disciplined, to the one who sat on the bench the whole time, but went and applauded the team afterwards, as sad as he was to be on the bench, but he goes to every practice with zest and makes the starting players better. Uh, the person that went and applauded, the person that would substitute out and went there and, and greeted the person that was coming in to take their place um, and celebrate the goal of a teammate, a teacher noticing and praising someone who got away from their defender, actions or behaviors that don't normally get a lot of attention, but the coach is always noticing them and pointing them out in front of everyone. This makes sure that the collective values of the team are always reinforced. So we always have to be aware to not let those moments go by. Don't let the opportunity go by to give merit to the collective, to give merit to a teammate's positioning or when a teammate is covering for someone else. It may not be something that is obvious to a person who is not an expert, but the coach has to point it out 
or later on the film to give props and show the team an individual who took the initiative to go cover for another teammate. Because, because it is the group, that's the initiative, who is seeing the team as a unit, as a whole. So, small behaviors like this. What about in terms of bonding between coaches and trainers, staff? How do you make that chemistry between them better, including between administration? Well, Brandon, here at Santos, we've been working together for a long time. The team has been together for over 10 years, and we've gotten to know each other well. We have a few rituals. For example, we meet every Monday. We have a get-together. We discuss achievements. We discuss practices and trainings. We discuss if things went according to plan, what all happened, the weekend's games. We are always close to one another. The technical commission, the staffing, the coaching staff is integrated to give their opinions. Of course, keeping in mind the age range, you know, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds and under, up to the 18 and under group, which is our team, we have that tool of getting together to discuss our work, to give feedback, to give opinions, to come to conclusions about things, to do to improve our work, a way of working together. So you're always in communication with each other and never satisfied with the status quo, always wanting to get better. Always, because the format of games are, are all together. The model of championships here, the federation, everyone plays together. So seven, eight, nine, and ten-year-olds all travel together and play in their age groups, but at the same time. So coaches are always traveling together, and everyone is playing together. The other championship, 12, 14, 15, 16, 18, also. So we have four coaches participating, watching each other's games, analyzing, and I try to instill in them that they not be vain, that they are humble to hear each other's opinions. Everyone makes the same, they all have similar salaries. That way they're not coveting the other person's job, trying to make more. So that's the type of model we have here, that type of format. Cool. What was your favorite moment as a player? Did you have a favorite goal or a tournament that you won? What was your favorite as a player and then as a coach? As a player, I have a world championship in Australia with the Brazilian national team that I scored a goal. At the time, they called it sudden death. I scored that goal. It still lives in my memory until today, which uh, was a volley thrown from the side when throw-ins were still done by, by hand. And uh, then the time was up, sudden death, goal, champions. It was over. So that's a goal that still vivid in my memory to this day. 
And as a professional in the area of management coach, as a coach, I think uh, this gold medal won now in the Youth Olympic Games now last year uh, in Argentina. At, uh, for the first time, Brazil was playing futsal in the Olympic Games, of course, the Olympic flag. And for the first time, a dream of all of us salonistas that the modality becomes an Olympic sport. We were, Brazil won the gold medal. And uh, I was part of the coaching staff. And for me, all that aspect of seeing the Olympics, the dream of Brazil, and there, there are only two gold medals for Brazil, karate and futsal. So that was very remarkable. Those are two important moments that come to mind right now. Tell me about the sense of pride you felt getting that medal. Brandon, in reality, uh, a movie plays in your head of many professionals, many stars with whom you played over the years, many people who also dreamed or still dreams of being or er, participating in an Olympic event like futsal. Interviews happen, you know, people come, Falcon, for example, sent a message to our athletes the moments before entering the final court that it was his dream, which he will no longer be able to achieve. You know, his dream was to be an Olympic champion. So we know that there are other professionals, other previous coaches that we had in the Brazilian team over the years that everyone shared this dream. So you feel represented, representing a lot of people, a modality that for many people is Brazilian. You know, they say historically it was from Uruguay, but consolidated in, in Brazil. We've been playing for a long time. It's part of the culture to play futsal. So when you're at the podium, when you're there picking up your medal, watching the Brazilian flag rise, and a movie plays in your head, you feel very grateful. You feel, really feel that's a huge privilege, Brandon. Cool. From what you're saying, what I'm hearing is that it's something much bigger than just you, than just Barata. Without a doubt, there, there's no way not to you... There's no way to individualize that feeling. And you know that futsal is very big. It's a goal of a lot, for a lot of people. It's a goal of, of an entire country that one day the sport will become an official Olympic sport. And it was an important step in that direction with a lot of responsibility, you know? You play an Olympic final where everyone says that futsal and you have to play against Russia and Argentina and the entire gymnasium is against you. There's no way for you to individualize that. It's not my personal award or any one person's award. It's the gold medal award for futsal in Brazil. That is a step for one day futsal to become an official Olympic sport. And we made our mark. We proved that futsal in Brazil will be at the top whenever they have the chance. We, we will be at the top, God willing.
deixar a futsal do Brasil vai estar no topo. Sempre que eles oportunizarem isso, a gente vai estar no topo, se Deus quiser. Cool, cool. Here in the United States, you know a little bit about here, right? If I were a 10 to 14 year old player, what advice would you give to someone who wants to become a professional futsal player? Brendan, I have a problem. Uh, I've been going for seven years, consecutive years. Because of the clinics, through this relationship that Santos has with the people from Dallas City Futsal, and I've came and I've observed this. Uh, futsal is a modality that's been growing. The practice of futsal is growing, but it's not a cultural modality yet in the United States. Television doesn't like it. There's no official league. There's no um, an important aspect that Brazil has, that basketball has, that swimming has, is the idol, the superstar, the example. Like, I want to be Michael Jordan. I want to be... So, so that's a big problem. However, futsal came to the United States. Selling the idea of futsal in the U.S. was based upon the idea that futsal would translate well to outdoor soccer. Especially due to the climate issues, the geographical issues. When it's too cold, I go indoors. Or when it's very hot, like in Dallas, Texas, people go play indoors. So this favored the practice of futsal. And when I dive a little more <coughs> into futsal, which is our cha challenge in Dallas, I take advantage of this movement that already has a lot of people practicing futsal to improve this modality, this activity. With the end goal being when the boy moves to field soccer, to outdoor soccer, which is already a very well-known modality in the U.S., um, he can transfer those skills he learned in futsal easily to the soccer field. So I see better and bigger. I see I see that's the great contribution of futsal in, in a transfer process, futsal to outdoor soccer. At least that's the first thing I notice, especially when futsal or sports in the United States have a very close relationship with universities. And that is an issue. The governing body needs to have a strong relationship with universities, with faculty, with teaching, with schools. And... Unfortunately, futsal is not part of a part of university programs anywhere. So this can be a big problem because of the Americans, of the American people's extreme desire to be a college athlete, to have an athletic scholarship at a university, to play female or male soccer for a university, to be a swimmer, to be a football player. It's very glamorized in the U.S. and um, it's somewhat similar to how soccer is in Brazil in terms of being glamorized to be, you know, in one's community as the university student. I belong to the university's varsity team and walk around with those coats. 
walk around wearing the jersey. You know, um, it's very interesting, and we don't see anything like that in futsal. Maybe because it's not a sport that TV desires. Perhaps because it's not part of the culture. But futsal, you know, futsal is not part of the American culture. But there's definitely a path that futsal can contribute to the development of outdoor soccer athletes. I think that's why I see more and more practitioners. So I see more and more, <clears throat> even on basketball courts, you rarely see futsal courts or the futsal lines on basketball courts. There, there are a lot of volleyball courts and you know basketball courts that are adapted to futsal, but, but I think it's a good start. For a player who's playing in college already, field soccer, what advantage do you think of them starting to practice futsal? Like, is it too late? Or would you help them yet? Of course, the uh, the initial process. I can tell you why because you know I went through the initial process of training. There's seven, eight, nine, you know, up to 13 years old. But depending on where you are, it's not a rule that you have to start early. <coughs> depending on what you're doing inside futsal, inside the court, if the coach is giving good training. This age group, 17, 18, 19, you know, psychological control is important, training load, not overdoing it, giving a, a load that's compatible with the development of that athlete. I think it's very helpful. It depends on who is coaching, what they are teaching, what activity they are doing. Futsal is by nature a sport with interesting qualities for the soccer player because constant decision making and not just decisions but quick decisions. There's some fast defensive and offensive tactics that futsal employs. So if the person in charge of training knows how to take advantage of those aspects, this will be very important for the development of the athlete. So, so if I'm going to use futsal, as I said, for climactic reasons, you know, we will go two months without outdoor activities because of the cold. There are regions in the, in the U.S. with cold weather, you know. There's no way to, for you to go outdoors. Then I'll use futsal to contribute. Only I have to know what I'm doing. What is the purpose of that training? Because if the coach knows, they will exploit futsal very well, take good advantage. I guarantee you that it's a rich modality in tactical concepts and tactical behaviors, technical behaviors. A player can easily transfer these behaviors to soccer, to field soccer. And you talked about quick decisions. I remember watching you give the training. You, you said that one of the great things that futsal teaches is how to make quicker decisions. What do you do to create this in training? 
você, o que você faz pra, pra tipo, criar isso? Exactly. Uh, we we learned here during my professional training process that we have to pick out certain aspects of the game that is to understand the game, to study the game. And can you hear me? Okay, so to, uh, to pick out aspects from the game, to understand the game, to study the game. And from there, I create the training activities. I try to isolate the separate aspects I want to improve on. So we understand that futsal is a form of extreme corrective action, decision-making, with a high dose of unpredictability. So every time I go to set up a practice, let's go, Brandon. We're both part of the coaching staff. Let's plan the training session for the week. If I know it's a modality with unpredictability, with corrective action, that the player has to make decisions, and not just decisions, but fast decisions, the faster, the, the, the better. So create a, a space, create a fight for space, It's not like tennis, it's not like volleyball, that each one has their own space. The opponent won't, you know, won't oppose your actions. No, they won't. Um, futsal, no. Not basque basketball either, or football either. The opponent opposes your actions. So if I have these four pillars that serves to set up my activities, so whatever training I'm going to do, of course, I have to respect my age group, keep my age groups in mind. But I return to that question that the child wants to be able, be capable of accomplishing the objective, but there must be these ingredients in my activity. Because if there isn't, I'm not practicing what I want to happen in the game. So if whatever activity is it is, let's say keep away, which here in Brazil we call bobinho, keep away, I must understand That keep away is a rich is rich in decision making. Oh, but okay. What is keep away? Let's let's make a circle of five and one in the middle. So the kid that has the ball, his decision, he has four passing options, and I limit the amount of touches, so two touches. So I understand that I put this activity in training because I understand that it entails unpredictability, decision making, problem solving. So, where? I ask where? Five against one. If I have the ball and I have four passing options, I can't dribble because I only have two touches or I will dribble less because one, I have to trap the ball depending on the level I'm at and if I have an opponent, I have a player in front of me who will try to sabotage my actions. So I count on unpredictability. I don't know if he's going to come at me with a slide tackle, if he'll be jumping, if he's fast, if he's slow, if he's left-footed. So it's unpredictable. And <clears throat> I count with, let's imagine that I'm one of the four without the ball, but not in the middle. These four have to understand the space 
Understand that I have one opponent, and I have to go to the space where I will help my teammate who has the ball. So I'm one of the four. I have to go to a place where he can pass it to me. So I'm developing game reading there. So when I tell them just two touches, I'm saying do it fast. It's just two touches. There's no time for you to think too much. So decide, solve the problem, which is to keep possession. Five against one. Don't let the one in the middle take it. So I'm within my parameters that I define to come up with an activity. So it's an activity that suits me. Suits me well. So about the, what about the guy in the middle? Well, he has to identify who has the ball. If he's right-footed, if he's left-footed. If they're slow, if they're smart, if they're intelligent. He has to look back, see where the other four move to, to try to stop their pass, and to get out of the middle. So I create that rule, who steals the ball, you know, gets out. Whoever loses the ball becomes a defender, and no one likes to be a defender. So I have the motivational issue, the, the aspect of joy, the, the aspect of happiness, of joy. These are all important for me to do well in the exercise, for me to understand, and quickly, I have to make decisions, and if I don't make the correct decision and quickly, I will stay in the middle. I'll stay in the circle. And I, as a coach, I'm analyzing that and prepared. I prepared this example, but I realize that my defense is, is weak, so the passes are being very easy. They're not making quick decisions. They're not being challenged. Well, I have the tools that I can tweak. So how do I tweak it? I can change the size of the space, determine a specific space for the activity. I can change the number of players. For example, I can increase my defense. It's now five against two. The decisions are more compromised. They, they have to decide better. Otherwise, they will leave the offense. So I increase defense, I change the size of the space, or I take a player out of offense, so I make it four against one, three against one. That's why the preparation of the training exercises has to be done at a very high level. And the coach who is watching has to be very attentive to how it's working. Because training is a living organism. Training is not a piece of paper. I don't set up and training session on the internet and send it to you and you go there and apply it. Training is your participation as a commander, as a teacher, based on a guideline. So I want there to be a lot of problems, problems for the child to solve. Is there a problem at five against one? Yeah. So, great. It's a good drill. Oh no, five against one is too easy and not challenging for the level of my player, so I have to be aware and change it. And like I said before, some example of modifying drills, changing side, space, change the amount of time they have, the number of touches they have, change, uh, change the size of the space, increase it to half court, or make it just the middle circle. So we're developing our athletes within what we believe, which is decision-making, smart players that play with a large, a great awareness, because... I can't map out everything that's going to happen in a game. I don't know when you're going to press. I don't know if I'm going to be losing, if I'm going to be winning, if the gym's full, if the gym's empty. I have to prepare my athletes in general, just like my teachers, my staff. They have to be prepared to perceive what's happening if the defense comes up, if the defense loosens, if a quicker player comes in, if a slower player comes in. 
If emotionally the team is prepared to play away at the opponent's house against a large crowd, these are all inherent issues. So it's not a case of one size fits all. No, no. You have to see it, perceive what is going on, and then you make adjustments. Of course, and speaking of the game, who makes the decision? Who finds a solution to the problem is the player. The player is directly connected to the problem. It's, it's up to you and your day-to-day -day practices to provide challenges to the player that he can be used to solving problems during training, learning to have awareness and make decisions. However, the person who takes the action during the game is the player. Us coaches, we have no control over that. There's no point in shouting, screaming like a madman. Who will decide and quickly, in a split second, is the player. That's not something the coach has control over. And the last question, what do you do to help players deal with nerves? You know, Brandon, the, the first thing we try to put in the player's head about nervousness, about nerves, is that which a lot of the players have. We show them that the nerves are due to the size of the problem that they make it out to be in their head. Eve of a final, a tough opponent, external things like pressure from a father, pressure from a girlfriend, um, having their contract expire soon, things that sometimes us coaches can't even control or don't even know about. What we control, which is the situation of the game there, we have the training that is a pre-competition situation. Let's go that way. So we try to calm him down in a way to show him that he's prepared for that scenario that's to come. This is at any age. That is a rule that we use easy to understand verbiage that <clears throat> we can get into the head of the child or young person or teenager that he is capable of doing what is to come whether it be a difficult opponent, a difficult game, a difficult crowd, that he is prepared physically, emotionally, psychologically, and technically, and tactically, and that we are paying attention to all of that. And when we give instructions or specific interventions in these moments of difficulty, we want to make sure that we are not an added stressor, that environment for him you know those who were players which was my case we know it's it's already a very stressful environment it's a complicated environment for him to solve a lot of problems and as a coach i'm not the one having to solve these problems the player is facing these challenges and every time i intervene i intervene i can't add to the stress on the contrary i have to be a facilitator of his actions and my actions start in training, in my activities, in my daily practices, in my recognition of the behavioral issues during warm-ups. We can already tell that so-and-so is a little off. On the bus ride, we already know that so-and-so has some sort of issue with something, you know. In the commentary, in the locker room, we already identify, because it's in our best interest, the overall behavior of the player not only technical and tactical, but the whole player. Because you will help with a brief comment 
You will help with a motivational comment, a nudge, a look you give, uh, or even getting on to the player, being harsh with, with the notion that you are ameliorating the difficult process, not stressing him out even more. That's a tip. Anyways, that's one thing we tend to observe a lot, that we try, that we're always aware during challenging times for our athletes. So remind the player that they have the ability to do what they need to do emotionally, physically, and tactically. And get to know your players and see who's acting a little different than normal. Always, always, Brandon. People call this mapping out. You will be subjected to a stressful process, a difficult game. And as a facilitator, I will map out every possibility of things that might happen to, to help you. The opponent, eating habits, concentration, training that week. I remember, I remind you you're good in that role. So for example, I say to you, Brandon, you're the best defender I have. We're gonna go against a, a front man that's really good, so I really value your defending. I put you at ease about that situation that is to come. So he has 20 league goals, 12 with his left leg. I help you with giving you information. I map out, which is what we call it, to facilitate your decision. But I, as the coach, don't make the decision. Just because I inform you that he is left-footed doesn't mean you have to block all of his kicks using your left foot. I'm giving you information. At the same time, I'm supporting your decision. Because like I said, the decision is yours to make. I can give you all the technical, technical, behavioral information about the imposing team and our team. But during the game there, everything is unpredictable. I can't control what is unpredictable. That's the game of soccer, futsal. So you, who are my athlete, have to be prepared for the unpredictable. You have to be prepared for the unexpected. If the opponent kicks 10 balls with his left and the next time he cuts it to his right and you didn't react, it surprised you. So you have to be prepared for action on top of action, action on top of action, because it's the game. We didn't make it up, so that's an important factor. Map out as much as you can. All the events there, the possible events in that scenario that can happen, but that will never be greater than your decision-making power. Because I guarantee you, I will tell you, I will support your decisions, but you have to be ready to make the decisions. But I trust in my weekly preparation, my training sessions. I know you are prepared to make the best decision. Man, this is a perfect description of sales, of a salesman. You have to know all the possible reactions and be prepared to deal with the unpredictable. Uh, of course, of course, yes. Of course. Of course. <laughs> we call it mapping out, to map out the scenario. Let's map out the scenario. What can happen? Where do I use my strengths 
the captain, he's a calm guy. So I'm going to tell the captain to keep Brandon by his side so he can influence Brandon because Brandon's a more nervous type of person or he's showing a lot of nervousness. So I'll say, hey, so-and-so, look here, get closer to Brandon at lunch during the trip. Do your warm-up next to him. This is a constant practice because you're coaching humans. It's not a machine you're dealing with. You don't push on, off, and that's it. This perhaps is our greatest challenge. Cool. Let's stop here. Thank you very much, Barata. It was a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Brandon. And let's see if in a few months we'll bring you back. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. Of course. Very cool. Thank you. Um, it was good to see you again. It's been a while since uh, since we've seen each other. Last time I went to Tulsa, we didn't meet up, but I'm happy to know that you're in good health, especially now that you're in this endeavor to discuss and associate the practice of soccer with the emotional side, the mental side, which is a very interesting subject in, in all aspects. So I'm always available. I hope I helped in the project. And please, when all the material is ready, show me how I can share it. Uh, I liked it a lot. Thank you. And I'm very honored to be on this. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.